Well, if you'd open your Bibles with me to Philippians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And uh, if you are visiting and you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, Philippians is in the New Testament, about halfway through into the New Testament. It's one of four of Paul's prison epistles that he wrote while in Rome. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And if I do see you looking down at your Bibles the entire service, that's okay. Uh, I like to work word by word and verse by verse through a passage. So you can either take your nap or I can think that you're studying and paying close attention. Well, recruit Regina. And I should say at the outset, my wife is laughing because that's what she calls me. Uh, well, we're, yeah, that's a different story. I say at the outset of this story, if your name is Regina or if you know Regina, please know that I did my best to honor and represent your name well. But recruit Regina. That was the nickname uh, they gave me 23 years ago when I stepped on those notorious yellow footprints at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego, California. And to be honest, I've gotten flack my whole life for looking younger than I am with my high-pitched voice to this day when I talk to a customer representative on the phone, even yesterday, right? They always call me ma'am. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, um, I'm, a, I'm a man. <laughs> No, not, ma- not ma'am, man. Yeah, never mind. Do you still have that sensitive facial skincare lotion available? Well, it's no different in boot camp. I looked about 14 years old with a high falsetto voice when drill instructor Staff Sergeant Acott nicknamed me Recruit Regina. And everyone who knew my nickname in boot camp, uh, made fun of that name. Everybody knew it. In boot camp, when a drill instructor ever requested your presence, he would yell out your name. Uh, The whole platoon would yell out your name. Then you would personally yell out your name, acknowledging to the platoon and to the drill instructor that you heard your name called. So drill instructor Staff Sergeant Acott would come out and yell, Recruit Regina, to which the rest of the platoon would yell, Recruit Regina, aye, sir, to which I would reply, Recruit Regina, aye, platoon, and then I would run to him and stand at attention, all ball-headed, and declare in my high-pitched voice, Recruit Regina, reporting as ordered. And he'd always have fun with me, like dressing me in a poncho, handing me a couple of buckets and ordering me to skip around the squad bay in front of the other recruits singing a tisket, a tasket, I lost my yellow basket, right? Yeah. And now, now that I think about it, it's pretty messed up. <laughs> and yeah, my, my therapist agrees with me too. But... Anyway, Stassar Nacot did this to every recruit, okay? Finding their weaknesses, capitalizing on their weaknesses, and like a maestro conducting some tragic score, he tore every one of us down, right? He broke our ego, our selfishness, our individuality, and then like a master builder, slowly built us up, teaching us discipline and uniformity, personal pride, and esprit de corps, culminating in creating a unified platoon of United States Marines. Hurrah. You feared him, and you respected him. You may have thought you hated him, 
but he truly was an upright man with whom you'd go deep into enemy territory. You trusted him with your whole life. But something happened a few weeks before graduation, something that altered the trajectory of my life. Every night, the recruits were afforded the opportunity to pray together before bed. And as you can imagine, we all prayed together before we went to bed. None of us knew how to pray. I think we all just prayed for survival for the next day. But on this particular night, Staff Sergeant Acott entered out of nowhere into our prayer circle. And we looked at him with utter bewilderment. And then with authority, he began teaching us how to pray with conviction and passion. When you come to God, he said, you come to him as your father. You offer up to him the type of requests you would of your own father with respect and adoration. And then you come in, come to him in and through the name of his son and your savior, Jesus. And just like that, he was gone. I think we're all a little bit shocked, (laughs) right? Like what just happened? Like what just happened? And to be honest, I'll tell you what happened. It rocked my world, right? Such a small moment, but a momentous moment. What I saw was something I had never seen before. I had seen a warrior, and I had seen a suit and tie Sunday Christian, but never interwoven, right? But here I just saw the intersection of a man who is a Marine's Marine, a warrior with a man who is gripped by and committed to Christ. It was such a small moment in my life, but a moment the Lord used to begin cracking the walls of my cold, hard heart, not only to the rich glories of the gospel, but that I had no excuse to say that a military member can't be a robustly confident Christian. So from that moment on, no kidding, God pursued me like a hound from heaven. It was either a Marine persistently inviting me to church, or it was an 80-year-old men, women in their retirement inviting me to servicemen center outside of Camp Pendleton where they fed young Marines sandwiches, played chess with us, beat us in chess, and answered all my questions about the Bible, or it was the navigator missionary who took me mountain biking and challenged my faith, or it was the master sergeant who I knew to be a committed Christian who related to me as a young Lance Corporal with humility, showing me that military leadership and following Christ don't have to be in competition. But it was ultimately a local church, right? Just like this, who brought me in, made me part of their family, who loved me, who fed me, who were patient with me, and who faithfully taught me the gospel that finally led me to give up all my empty pursuits and embrace Christ as the only hope of my salvation. And this is the thing, right? Take away uh, all those small encounters where God's people went out of their way to reach me as a young Marine. Apart from God's divine grace, I'd be as lost now as I was then. But they didn't, right? And who knows what was going on in their lives, but regardless, they used their God-ordained placement in life as an opportunity to see me and to influence me and to reach me with the gospel, whether as a DI, as my master sergeant, as those in retirement, as a church member near a military installation, to even just that young Marine inviting me to church. They could have used their time for an innumerous amount of other pursuits, but rather they entrusted their life to God's ordained 
purposes and sought to see the gospel advance by reaching me for Christ, right? And where did they learn that, right? I'd soon learn as I feasted on the Bible that they learned it from Christ who came to seek and save the lost. They learned it from his disciples. They learned it from generations of faithful followers of Jesus. And that's what I love about this unique story in Paul's letter to the Philippians. He does just that. (laughs) He exemplifies it. Paul was at a point in his life in which he had all the rights in the world to tweet, Instagram, and Facebook post all the injustices he was facing. Hashtag free Paul. Hashtag I'm with Paul. Hashtag Caesar, you so crazy. But rather, Paul uses this particular life circumstance as God's ordained purpose for the advance of the gospel. And funny enough, the people that he reached for the gospel happened to be young military soldiers standing guard duty in a military town. Right? So to give you a little context of this passage, we're going to work through this morning. I'm going to read Philippians 1, 3 through 14, but I'll particularly focus on verses 12 through 14 for the rest of our time together. And I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, verses 3 through 14. Okay, are you ready? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, to give a little context to this passage, I think it might be helpful for you to know why Paul is writing this letter In the first place, um, apparently Paul learned from Epaphrodites that there were two challenges facing the Philippian church. The first was outside persecution. There were those who had had no greater pleasure than to disrupt and eradicate the Philippian church. At the same time, there were also inside squabbling, right? Those in the church were fighting amongst themselves, creating strong divisions. It's kind of like a football team who can't get on the same page while competing against their rivals, right? They'll lose every time. The only way that you beat the New England Patriots is to come with a unified front containing Brady, and you'll win. And I don't understand why no one has figured that out. Right? So Paul is seeking to get the Philippian church on the same page 
and focused on the things that really matter, the kingdom of God, the advance of the gospel, and the glory of God in the face of Christ. And the problem with the Philippian church is that they were so focused on their undesired life circumstances that they missed what God was doing, right? So Paul sets himself as an example of what it is to look at all your life circumstances as God's ordained means to advance the gospel. And isn't that the truth, right? What is God doing? Like, all the time, right? Is God's primary focus American politics and or the rise or fall of our governmental or societal utopia? Is God's primary focus your secure retirement and an ever-rising stock market ensuring your financial peace before you gently die in your comfortable, temperpudic bed? Is God's primary focus where God lets you suffer just a little, but not too much so that it doesn't inconvenience your personal goals and pursuits or the personal goals and pursuits of your children? I think we all know that God's primary focus is his glory, right? And seeking and saving the loss, advancing his kingdom in and to every tribe and tongue and nation. And if that goal came primarily through the suffering of Christ on the cross, how much more should we expect from God similar types of suffering and hardships and inconveniences for the sake of God advancing his gospel? And Paul knew it. He knew it, right? In fact, Jesus made it clear to him when he said in Acts 6, 16, for I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Paul in verse 12 is exemplifying a life where he sees his life circumstances as God's ordained occasion to advance the gospel. And he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what's happened to him? He's imprisoned right? It's no small inconvenience. He didn't get in a flat tire. He didn't get the orders. He didn't want. He didn't get extended for a month on deployment. He didn't miss a promotion. He isn't living in a town or a house he particularly doesn't want to live in. He's imprisoned under the most powerful empire in the world at that time for the sake of gospel. And anyone in their right mind would have most likely concluded, well, that's the end of Paul's effectiveness, right? should have been more careful, right? He should have strategically arrived in Rome to influence the influencers, winning politicians maybe, educators, CEOs, and artists to the gospel. Then we would have really had a chance to see the gospel flourish in the city. But God said no. Hashtag God has different plans. In God's wisdom, he had different method. God always works in the most unconventional ways. And what we read is that one of the primary means by which God would advance the gospel in Rome would be through the various lance corporals or that private first class guarding Paul during his imprisonment. (laughs) Right? And again, we read verses 12 through 13. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So just a point of clarification. Many times when we read of Paul's imprisonment, 
We think of maybe a cold, dark, dank dungeon, but in actuality, he was under house arrest. Uh, We learn of this in and around the last 15 verses of chapter 28 in the book of Acts. In fact, in verse 30, we learn that he had to pay his own rent while he was in under house arrest. But for the sake of our purposes, the important verse for us is in chapter 28, verse 16, when we read, and when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him, right? In other words, Paul stayed by himself in a house for about two years along with one other soldier guarding him. And we can probably assume the soldiers were maybe on four-hour shifts, which means Paul would see about six soldiers a day. And I don't know how many of you have ever stood watch before, but it is brutally boring. And any type of conversation is welcome. So I'm sure Paul had no problem capitalizing on the moment and striking up conversations that led to gospel topics. And I'm sure the conversations began with Paul saying something like, so were you rooting for Alabama or Georgia this year? Alabama. (laughs) Alabama. Oh, you're an army fan. Oh, that makes sense. Hey, way to go uh, beating the Navy again this year. And Paul might have said, oh, me, yeah, I'm Navy, long, long story, right? So anyways, have you heard about Jesus? And we read in verse th- 13 that it had become known amongst all the soldiers that his imprisonment was for Christ. So clearly he was explaining to these young guards who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished on the cross and what that means for their life. And as a side note, Paul wasn't telling these soldiers that military service was incompatible with a life with Christ, but rather how Christ informs their military service. And that goes for the rest of scripture. Over and over again in the Bible, we see God favoring and blessing the work of those in the military. In fact, the warrior King David blessed God saying, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Psalm 144, one and two. Even in the New Testament, soldiers are regularly praised and never discouraged from continuing in their military service. In fact, of a Gentile Roman centurion, right? A commanding officer. Jesus said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. <laughs> it's astonishing. Matthew eight ten. So God affirms and blesses the position and work of a military member. And so Paul could easily affirm the soldier's work in guarding him while at the same time explaining to the soldier that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Paul would explain to the soldier that God initially created everything, everything good, Right? But mankind rebelled against God's good and rightful authority, and as a result, the world is utterly broken. Our hearts are utterly broken. There's strife and wars and injustices and death. In fact, we wear a uniform because of sin to protect good people from bad people. But at the same time, we're no different, Paul would have said. We went our own way. Right? We are resistant not only to authority, but God's authority. Most of us are secret rebels, he would have said. And God sees, he knows, and if we're honest, it's not looking good for you and me. But God has provided a way by which he will reckon us righteous, forgiving us of all our sin, guaranteeing us life everlasting, and it's all ours free for the taking. And we can have it all by repenting of our sinful and empty pursuits and entrusting ourselves to Christ alone to save us. And from verse 13, that message must have resonated with those soldiers because if the whole imperial guard knew about Paul, 
then those soldiers, after they got off duty, were clearly going back to their barracks and saying, you are never going to believe what I'm about to tell you, right? Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is. And by faith in him, you can be forgiven and guaranteed life everlasting. And the gospel went ablaze in Rome. Now, who could have made something like that up, right? I've read a lot of church planning books, uh, church growth books, evangelistic techniques, and none of them begin with getting yourself placed under house arrest, right, in order for a young military member to guard you so that you can tell him the gospel in hopes that he'll go tell his buddies in the barracks and on the ships and then to the surrounding town, right? But rather, this is how the Lord works, right? We plan our ways, but the Lord orders our steps. Proverbs 16, 9, God works in the most unusual and often mysterious ways to accomplish his purposes. And you and I just have to be ready. It may not be where you want to be or facing a challenge you don't want to face, but in those moments, we're to look to our right and to our left and see who God has placed us beside. That's what my DI did. That's what that master sergeant did, right? That's what the 80-something retirees did. That's what a young Marine did. That's what the local church near my base did. And that's what Paul did. And that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus, he didn't grumble on the cross, right? We know from Hebrews 12, 2, that his joy for what his death would accomplish was his endurance on the cross, all right? Of course, he suffered tremendously, but he also welcomed a thief into paradise, made plans to take care of his mom, and he forgave his executioners, and in so doing, he won an unexpected skeptic. And do you know who that first convert was upon his death? You ready for this? A Roman soldier, right? And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark 15, 39. So of course the Lord has a heart for people from every tribe and tongue and nation, but we would be remiss if we didn't say he clearly strategically works to save those in the military from the warriors of the Old Testament to the Roman centurions in the gospel to Cornelius in the book of Acts to the imperial guards here in Philippians. And this is the thing. We here in this church, here in this community, we can't overlook that we live in one of the most populated military areas in the world, right? I'm sure most of you already know that within the Hampton Roads area is the home of Joint Expeditionary Base Little Creek, 5th Coast Guard District, U.S. Marine Corps Force Command, Naval Air Station Oceana, Naval Medical Center Portsmouth, Naval Station Norfolk, right? The total Department of Defense population, including active duty and civilian personnel in our area, is about 150,000 people. And that doesn't include the 13,000 within the Department of Defense leaving the service and entering into the private sector in our area every year. In fact, the Department of Defense spending in our area accounts for almost 46% of all the regional economic activity. We are like the Disneyland for the military, right? Minus the Mickey Mouse, the Magic Castle, and meeting Snow White. But our rides are a lot more realistic, right? But in all honesty, could I be so bold to say that every person in this church knows at least one military member in the area, right? One military spouse, one military kid. That's not like the rest of our country who sometimes rarely intersect with a military member, right? 
So whether we like it or not, whether we planned it or not, God in his wisdom has ordained for you and me to be in this military city at this juncture in our lives. This is a unique strategic opportunity we have in our community that we can't overlook. And what a crazy thought, but could you imagine a revival in the Hampton Roads area that began with our church reaching the sailors and the Marines, Coast Guardsmen, airmen, and soldiers around us with the gospel of Christ, right? The Apostle Paul imagined it, and God blessed it. Well, as you know, tomorrow is Memorial Day. In fact, many of us will be off work tomorrow in observance of this holiday. Memorial Day is uh, the day, as you know, uh, a federal holiday where we remember and honor those who have died while serving in the military. Around the country, wreaths will be laid, taps will be played, and the tears of many will be shed, right? Freedom is not free, right? We are here freely worshiping this morning with fear of no outside governmental repercussions because hundreds of thousands have died to secure the type of national religious freedom we experience. Just gathering in this church this morning, sipping our lattes, cheerfully shaking hands, and worshiping together cost the blood of thousands of young men and young men, women who answered the call. Our gathering is a blood-bought moment, Right? And these men and women who died are the same type of men and women in uniform you may see on a weekly basis in our area who are willing to give of their own lives to continue to secure the freedoms that we enjoy. It's sobering to know right, that they may die. And some of the military members in this church may die. Freedom is not free. So amongst all the hustle and bustle of Memorial Day sales tomorrow, Look for opportunities, not only to thank those who serve us, but also to remember not only those who gave some, but those some who gave all. Well, I want to close by saying again, freedom is not free, right? And in the Lord's wisdom, God has given military personnel a privilege they might not even recognize, a privilege to be a picture a reflection of the ultimate service and sacrifice of Christ Jesus our Lord. We talk a lot about our salvation being free, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is a free gift of God, lest any man should boast, right? Yes, the gift was free to us, but it came at a great cost to God. It cost the Father giving his Son, and the Son willingly paying the price on the cross, our freedom, our salvation came at a cost, and the cost was the price. The price was the blood of Christ. And you, Colossians 2, 13 and 14, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Right? You and I were dead, dead, dead. We were dead because of our sin. We were cut off from a life with God. We were not his people. We are Gentiles. You and I couldn't be in a worse scenario than what we were in, but God, but God, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, known as the Prince of Preachers, used to say these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. But God... But God made us alive, brought us to life together with him in relationship with him. He did this by forgiving us all of our sin. How much of our sin? 
all of our sin, all the trespasses we've committed, all our adultery and drunkenness and murders and theft, lies and pride, all these things resulted in an insurmountable amount of debt we owed, a debt which legally demanded our eternal death. But the, the list of all our trespasses, all our sins, all our idolatries were taken from us and paid for Jesus where he was nailed to the cross. <laughs> My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So First Baptist Church in Norfolk, in Christ, you are forgiven, right? Our gathering right now is a blood-bought moment by the greater sacrifice of Christ. Let it warm your soul, right? Let it encourage your spirit and then it, let it propel your lips to declare the glorious news, yes, to your family members, and yes, to your neighbors, and yes, to your coworkers, but yes, especially as we nationally consider Memorial Day to the thousands of servicemen and women and their families that God in his wisdom has providentially put at your doorstep. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And God, we are captivated by this gospel. Who are we that you would look upon our helpless state and save us unto everlasting joy where we will delight forevermore in the face of Christ? We're nothing. We have nothing except for all that we are in Christ. Sinners now forgiven, adopted, made righteous, sealed with your spirit, and deeply loved. Jesus, thank you. Now, God, use us. Use us in this city. Use this church in this military town. We are where we are by your sweet providence, God, to see your heart through scripture for the military and then for you to strategically place us in this town is a sweet gift to us. Let us taste your love by you loving this military community through us. Let us be your hands and your feet in the mouthpiece of the precious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in and through his name for your glory and our joy. Amen.